0: So I begin? Okay. Hi, y'all. I'm Valerie, and I'm a compulsive over and under eater. Where to begin? Uh, I've not spoken in a secular meeting in a while, um, but I can only tell my story and tell it within the context of how it, why I was asked to speak here. Um, I got abstinent in 1987. I celebrated 34 years of abstinence last month. Uh, I came in through the uh, through the back door after getting sober in 1985. And within 18 months, I was just a food mess, like a lot of people are. And uh, it was my AA sponsor who took me to my first OA meeting. And uh, I went to a meeting every week. I got a sponsor, I worked the steps. And it's taken me a long, long time to understand my story and my process. Um, And I assume that most people that are in any meeting these days are newer than I am. Uh, They're not always. Um, But what, what I've come to understand is a very Jungian process, which is kind of the genius of the 12 steps. So when you finally take the word God out of it and put in the the word self, like a greater self, a collective self with capital S, I don't rankle anymore and I'm open to it and I'm willing to engage with um, a force that lives within me and connects all of us, all living things. And it took me a while to get there. I had to go through periods of kind of um, like just rankling at the word even spiritual. When people go, oh, you're so spiritual. It's like, oh, no, I'm not. So um, when I was born, I was very much wanted by my family. I was the first baby. I was the miracle baby. They weren't supposed to have kids. They had me. But when I was six weeks old, my mother got very, very sick. And uh, my dad had a lot of trouble taking care of me. He was scared and he was angry. And when I was about seven years in the program, I was in a hurricane that unearthed a lot of trauma. Um, and it was in unfolding my story that i came to a relationship with a process a process of a unfolding of me when i take my third step in the morning i don't offer myself to god i offer and i've been doing this for decades i offer myself to the path unfolding And for me, that path is a path of wholeness, because when I came into the program, I was in a lot of broken pieces, and I kept those pieces at bay by eating, by numbing myself, by not living in my body. There's a great line in a D.H. Lawrence novel that said, Mr. So-and-so lived two blocks away from his body, and that was me. I lived in another room from my own body. And when I came to Overeaters Anonymous, I finally heard people say that they felt as if they had like a a computer or a refrigerator, a, a metal shape with a head on top, and that they weren't connected to what went on in their bodies. And I came to understand that the reason that I wasn't connected to my body was because my body remembered. My body remembered my father yelling at me as a baby. My body remembered getting hurt when I was eight years old by a neighborhood boy. And when we got home from the hospital after that incident, I had dessert for dinner. And I was off and running. I'd been teed up by the early pre-verbal pain. But when that boy hurt me, he was eight years older than me. Uh, Nobody dealt with it. There was no such thing as traumatic brain injury back then. And when we got home from the hospital, my mother said, what do you want to eat? And I wanted dessert. And we moved to a new house. And my grades went from straight A's in in second grade to third grade, struggling with math, feeling lost. And I would come home from school in the afternoon and I would make two pieces of toast while I ate two pieces of toast, while I made two, while I ate two with cinnamon and sugar and butter on it. And that was my life. And that was pretty much my life until I found um, amphetamines when I was 16. And that seemed to solve the problem for a while, but then by the time I was 19, that almost cost me my life. So when I got to the program, I was rather like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz after the flying monkeys got a hold of him. There was a little bit of me over here and a little bit of me over there and a little bit of me all over the place. And what the admission of powerlessness did for me was it took me out of trying to control my anxiety. The first four or five years of my recovery, I had waves of anxiety that I thought were going to kill me. And what I found out was that I had a resilience within me, this greater self, this life force that when I could tap into it, I could surf the anxiety. And in being willing to learn and face what lives beneath the cravings, I was able to find the little parts of myself, the, the disowned parts of myself that mostly lived in physical sensations. When I first started meditating about, I don't know, 30 years ago, they would do this thing called a body scan And I could never get from head to toe because I couldn't live in my body for that many breaths to actually feel from my head to my face, to my neck, to my shoulders, I couldn't do it. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be crazy, which is what I thought that was. But what I found out that I was on a journey toward wholeness when I was 18 months abstinent, I graduated with my bachelor's degree at the age of 33. And I thought I was going to be a poetry professor. I taught children how to write, I was a published poet. And I didn't get into the MFA program that was in driving distance of my home, the only MFA program. And so I sat down and I had a conversation with with this force in the universe, and I just said, oh, my, what would you have me do? And a knowing came through me that said, call the Jung Institute, because I would loved Carl Jung as a kid when I was in college, when I was 17 and 18. And I called the Jung Institute, even though I didn't like therapy and I didn't like therapists, because for Five years before I got to the program, I went to therapy, and it didn't help. It was just a regurgitation of what I did that week. And I remember telling a therapist that I ate a two-pound bag of M&Ms for dinner the night before. And he goes, oh, that's not a problem. I do that sometimes myself. And, you know, it was a problem for me because every time I did things like that, I hated myself. Lacerating self-hatred. It wasn't low self-esteem that drove me to eat. It was trauma and self-hatred. I would medicate the trauma and then I would hate myself for doing it and I would medicate the trauma and hate myself for doing it. And it was the community of other men and women who I saw nodding their heads when I shared my pain, that began me on this, this process of trusting that I could learn and grow and not be like a rock star recovering person who's uh, got it all together, but somebody who continually falls apart only to be made more whole every time that I face things. Sorry, Valerie, that's the 10 minute mark. Thank you. During this pandemic, I have had more of myself. And I can only say that the meetings and hearing other people sharing honestly about feeling trapped and being cascaded by memories. I've come up with a kind of metaphor that I've been using that it's like my trauma and I have a long trauma history because once you've been traumatized, you sort of like you're magnetized to bad things happen to you. I volunteered for a lot of them and a lot of them just fall under the rubric of shit happens. But in the two years leading up to the pandemic, Um, the place where my horses lived in Malibu, burned down in the Woolsey fire. And after a lot of chaos, I moved them to another place. And in that other place, I was out riding in very tall super bloom. And a man spooked my horse who bolted and spun And I couldn't stay on, and I was thrown off very violently and concussed. And a year after that, while trying to sell this horse, because he was just too much for me, with tons of grief, during the pandemic, he wrecked himself and had to be put down. And I didn't think that I could get through a trifecta of that kind of trauma, both sober and abstinent during a pandemic. And what I did was I opened myself wide to the fellowship of the program. And I told the sponsor and my fellows and my sponsees and people in meetings exactly how destroyed I felt. I didn't come here to look good. I came here to save my life and I'm still saving my life one day at a time with a process that is still unfolding after 35 and a half years. And with a lot of glimmers of gratitude and a lot of hope, I found a therapist who specializes in polyvagal theory, which I could never have found were it not for the pandemic, which feels like this incredible curse of the earth. And yet, I'm finding gifts in it. And what I've learned is that my nervous system, which got wired when I was six weeks old, my nervous system got wired to react and shut down. And when I shut down, I have cravings. And what I do with those cravings now is I don't go and eat even though during the pandemic, oh my goodness, I've watched people in other programs just balloon with uh, medicating during the sheltering. It's the headline in magazines of how to get rid of your pandemic weight. And I'm gonna share with you the secret that Overeaters Anonymous hid from me for 32 out of my 34 years. A lot of us made fun of outside help when it comes to weight management programs. I was very snide and ignorant about things like Weight Watchers and Noom and all of these other programs. And because I am a 12-step heretic, just like my old sponsor Hazel, I get to talk about this, which is I, a couple years ago, I signed up for a bunch of different online Noom and Weight Watchers under the guise of, I'm a family therapist, I work with a lot of eating disorders, and I'm going to do some research and development on my disease. And what I found out was that I really like those programs, and they were really helpful when it came to a plan of eating. And there's a vast community with hashtag OA within those groups. And what it did was it spread the net even wider, for even more what I would call secular recovery, because they're not based on a higher power, they're based on community and cognitive work. And what I found is that as a holistic practitioner of these steps, and by that I mean, I'm sober in AA. I'm abstinent in OA. I do relationship work in Al-Anon. I've been a 25-year member of Business Debtors Anonymous and Workaholics Anonymous, that I am a quintuple winner. And I have surrendered all of these defenses, these things that keep me from wholeness, that allow me to numb out and dissociate and freeze, stay in that frozen, what the polyvagal people call a dorsal state, where I would go from, from I'm okay, I'm safe, to I'm not safe, to I got to shut, shut it down, just shut myself down, like a possum that plays dead. <laughs> That's me. That's my nervous system is I just want to go away. And what the 12 steps in the community here do is allow me to go through that. The thing I always show my patients, I'm very visual, is like, here's here's my pain. And my pain was wired when I was pre-verbal. And here I come every day toward my pain, and I want to go away. I come toward my pain. My ego says, you can't do that. If you do this, you'll fall apart. And I want to go away. And instead, I go through it. I text someone, I call someone, I have a wonderful sponsor who's a great listener, and I just download the pain. And when I come through it, I come out on the other side, and I'm whole, or more whole. Carl Jung, who the 12 Steps are based in his form of psychology, he said, I would rather be whole than be good. And that's my motto. It's been my motto for at least 34 years. I'm just on on a journey toward wholeness. It's going to take a hell of a lot of honesty. It's going to take a lot of vulnerability. I'm so glad that people like Brene Brown now have made a brand out of vulnerability. You know, um, I don't worship at the feet of any podcaster or TED Talker. But I am grateful that vulnerability and meditation excuse me, um, are part of my process. This process toward placing the ego in the care of you guys and the force that happens when two or more of us are gathered to be honest and say what we've been eating or not eating or how we've been eating or what we're avoiding and what's underneath that. I'm sorry to minute in Don't be sorry. Thank yeah. you. You can't be sorry for giving service to help me wrap it up. I don't make notes before I give a talk. I trust that there's an intuition inside me that's got enough wisdom I'm going to dial into the group, even though you're in a bunch of Hollywood square boxes and I haven't seen a lot of you nodding, which is very scary, but that's okay. Cause I'm here mostly not to serve you. I'm mostly here to save my own butt. And I can't tell you how grateful I am to wear the same size jeans as I wore when I had one year of abstinence. And that is not easy in one's 60s, believe me. But I am committed to exercising every day. I'll leave you guys with this in terms of trauma recovery and exercise. There's this thing called fascia flossing and I can share a link to my teacher. I found it on Daily OM and I then went to this teacher who used to be in Santa Barbara just on YouTube, it's free, to do this kind of yogic, yogic moves that are just the way that my dogs do up dog and down dog. It's called pendiculation, which stretches the fascia. And I've been doing fascia release for years with a Mm -hmm. rolfer, but this I can do at home and do it every day. And it changed my posture. It changes the way I move. And it grounds me in all of the different parts of Valerie. My motto today is all all of me is welcome. And may each of you on this path be as skeptical as you need to be and as open and as willing and as honest as you have to be if you want to stick around for 34 years or more. I've been given so many gifts, so many gifts, including my horses. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful Sarah remembered hearing me years ago. Sorry, don't give a lot of talks. I'm time. Namaste. Thank you.